My name is Annie Lobert, and I'm a champion survivor of trafficking to tell you that God can heal you from any hurt that's ever happened to you. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you too. Hi friends, and welcome to Annie's Pink Chair, where we invite presence, inspire purpose, and ignite passion into the hearts of people with God's love throughout the world. And I'm just so excited, happy. I kind of feel like I'm at the doorway of Disneyland right now. I know that sounds weird, but we are in Las Vegas, filming in Las Vegas, and I have a really good friend here that I probably would have been really good friends with back in the day when we were little kids and growing up being teenagers. She's got such a beautiful heart and she came all the way from Texas to come hang out with us. My friend today, her name is Becca Charleston. And she is a nationally respected leader and a dynamic public speaker whose story of survival, triumph, and determination has been featured in communities across the United States and at the national level by numerous media outlets, including Deadline Crimes, Daystar, Dallas Morning News, NPR, USA Today, and the New York Post. After enduring a decade of abuse and exploitation, she built a career dedicated to the empowerment of survivors and focused on community collaboration at all levels. And in 2013, she launched Becca Speaks Out to provide customized training and consulting services to law enforcement, service providers, and community leaders alike. Oh, Becca, last thing I wanted to tell everybody was that you have criminal justice degrees. I do. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, when I was starting my life over, I didn't know what to do, but I wanted to find a career that I could support myself and my baby with. So I wound up going back to school and didn't know if I could complete one course. And lo and behold, I'm actually smart and actually <laughs> like to learn. <laughs> Just never gave myself a chance. So I got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and then my master's degree in criminology. Wow. See, that's something that I love you to share and brag because... Like you said, like you didn't think you were smart, but that's yep. not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're well put together. You're beautiful. Thank you. you are a great communicator. Your eyes are like they shine and you have like a softness about you. But you can tell that you know what's going on. Like mm -hmm. I could tell you could walk in a room and you could actually see what's going on just by looking at the people. Mm -hmm. And also from what you've been through, because we both yes. know trafficking. Yep. We had it's to figure a hot out how topic. to survive. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. you know what? I'm really happy you're here today because we are finally starting to hear people hear us mm -hmm. literally. Mm -hmm. And it's about time. Don't you think? Yeah, it is. <laughs> and I'm really, really excited because your story is so fascinating, but not only that, it's very unique. You spent time in jail. I mean, I was a little jailbird, but I kept getting out in and out. <laughs> but you spent time. Yeah. So can you tell us, I mean, I look at you, like I said, mm -hmm. you look well put together, like cute shoes, by the way. Thank you. Um, I love the pink, the hair. How does someone like you, mm -hmm. like, how did this all happen? Did something happen as a child that led for you to become a trafficking victim? Oh, definitely. There was contributing factors that made me vulnerable to 
you know, meeting what felt like my boyfriend and this guy that was going to take care of me. But I did. I had a, a family member commit suicide when I was really young. I was bullied really bad in the wow. fifth grade at 10, wound up getting sexually assaulted at 10, raped at 14. So all these negative experiences that were kind of telling me men wanted something from me and that I really didn't have a choice in the matter. And just I felt really isolated and alone you know my I understandably grew up in my parents probably worst depression nightmare of one of their their children committing suicide um and so I just remember feeling really alone which made me vulnerable to somebody that came in and offered that instant acceptance and love and seemed like they were going to help me so back then because it seems it probably for you like a long time ago Mm -hmm. that this suicide happened yeah did you feel any way responsible? And what were the feelings you were having at the time that it occurred to your family? You know, it's it's odd how suicide can affect a family, you know, because it really kind of puts the idea in everyone's minds. Um, I think in high schools or studies across the country that there, it, usually there's a cluster of suicides that can happen, that it kind of gives you this idea that you can end your problems, you know, that way. And in my family, I didn't feel at fault at all, but um, I remember how guilty I would feel when we, I would even mention my brother Brian's name. It was just kind of this issue that my family tried to get over the best they could. Um, but we, there wasn't a lot of counseling back then, right? There weren't like today, you know, mental health is a much more acceptable hot topic. Yeah. (laughs) And back then, you know, we're talking 35 years ago, you know, I was gosh, in the mid eighties is where we're talking about. So it's a whole different world. Totally. So I didn't learn how to cope and process the grief. And it just became this issue that we just kind of swept under the rug and, you know, kept it moving like everything was okay and showed up at church and plastered a smile on our face. And when people asked us how we were doing, we would say we're fine. And we weren't, you know, we really weren't that, that my brother's suicide had a a drastic effect on my whole family. Wow. So there was no counseling offered to you? No, that's horrible. And, and how did your family like move on? Cause I, I know you said, Oh, you just go to church and put a smile on your face. What was happening like internally when you would come home from church or just like a family event, you'd have dinner and he mm-hmm. wasn't there. The chair's vacant. Yeah. Like family activities. Now, how many children are in your family? So I'm the youngest of six. Okay. And he was the oldest boy. So okay. there was about, um, I think about a 12 or 13 year difference between us. So he had already, you know, moved out of the house. So it wasn't, you know, so much that he wasn't there anymore. So he'd been in and out of jail and struggling using drugs and just kind of felt like he couldn't get his life on track. And so he decided to end his own life. Um, but it was hard. You know, my, I found out as an adult, my dad didn't say his name for two years out of his mouth and he had five other mouths to feed. And so he just went back to work and, you know, my mom prayed about it, you know, of course, but there was no real healthy conversations, at least that I can remember, you know, I was, I was a young girl though. And, And this is actually a really good topic to talk about, about suicide and how it affects families, because obviously it really affected you. And I wanted to ask a question about that. Did your family ever hear any teaching from the church that, oh, people that commit suicide, 
they're going to go to hell. Oh, I think they definitely struggled with that. They, um, I was raised going to Southern Baptist Church in, oh in Texas. So nothing against Southern Baptist, but oh boy. Yeah. It, it brings its own set of ideologies and, um, and especially from the eighties, it was definitely something you didn't talk about. Yeah. And it doesn't say mm-hmm. that you're going to go to hell. Yeah. If you take your own life, like, right, this is just like the way they put these scriptures together. They make you believe that that's what's going to happen. But mm-hmm. I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but when someone's in that tormenting space mm-hmm. where their mind is not right, yeah. how do, how do they control themselves? Mm-hmm. And I feel, I feel and believe this, that the Lord has such compassion mm-hmm. on people yeah. that are thinking about ending their lives because he, mm-hmm. he comes close to the brokenhearted. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I know this because I tried to end my life. Mm-hmm. So even for the grace of God, um, that I didn't, I actually in my family have had suicide as well. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking to me mm-hmm. how much the family tries to just throw it under the rug and not talk about the person anymore. Mm-hmm. And this was, I don't want to say the person's name, but they basically put themselves in the car and they ended their life mm-hmm. because of a, a weight issue, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Mm-hmm. Weight. Yeah. Like self-esteem, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so after this happened, do you think it altered your mentality about God and what you believed? Oh, for sure. I mean, I grew up knowing a very angry, vindictive God that I thought if I wasn't doing everything perfectly, if I wasn't following all of his commandments, then he didn't want to hear anything from me, which now I know today couldn't be further from the truth that he was always passionately pursuing me and just waiting for me to turn to him, that he was right there with me, protecting me through all the hell that I went through, that he had already set me apart and called me holy and that he had a purpose you know, in all of it. And, you know, I just, I'm, I'm grateful for that now. You know, I can see it a lot differently, but, but back then, you know, I thought if I wasn't living perfectly, then God didn't want anything to do with me. Right. And I didn't, I didn't want anything to do with a God that I had to be perfect for, you know, when I was totally, did you feel afraid for your brother's soul? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think my mom had a struggle with a lot of those questions, but my brother did accept Jesus Christ as a savior. So, you know, you're going to see him again. Yep. Exactly. You're going to see him. That's so awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, and after all this happened, obviously, how old were you? You were, I was about five years old when that happened. So how does that affect a five-year-old? So that does something to the frontal cortex of the brain. Mm Mm-hmm. It's That's traumatic, yeah. Major trauma. Mm-hmm. And that shapes your brain a certain way. Like right. the fear factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you got older, you, you were talking about being bullied in school. And I understand that because mm-hmm. I was bullied too. Mm-hmm. That's horrific. Yep. So do you remember why they were bullying you? Yeah, it was because I hit puberty before everyone else and didn't want to feel different. And so I would get called names by the older sixth grade boys, you know, and it it was devastating. You know, I can't imagine what it's like for kids today that everything is on social media. You know, there's so many people have access into your home, whereas before, you know, you might get bullied at school, but at least you went home and it didn't follow you there necessarily. Right. Um, so I can I, imagine why, because I remember being developed, too, and it 
mm-hmm. they start saying things. It's like, <sighs> yeah. And then you start to hate yourself yes, and your own you're femininity. Like, well, yeah. where's the right bra for me? Like, mm-hmm. not to be graphic, but yeah, it's like mm-hmm. my mom's got to take me bra shopping. How embarrassing! Remember that? Like, yep. mm-hmm. I'm like. What kind of bra do I wear? When you desperately just want to fit in. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to be different. I'm going to be yeah. real with you. Mm-hmm. I didn't wear a bra for a long time. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. didn't because it made me feel like I was restricted. And also you could see it through my t-shirt. Mm-hmm. So I would just wear double t-shirts mm-hmm. and just like roll like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so when you were bullied, did you start feeling insecure? Obviously oh, yeah. that would make someone feel like am I not pretty enough? Mm-hmm. Am I not good enough? Mm-hmm. Like, why are they calling me names? Right. How did that affect like your grades and stuff? Um, my grades stayed okay through that, but it definitely affected my, my confidence. And then when, like I said, that was the first time I got sexually assaulted that same year. So here boys my age were making fun of me and being mean to me. But then there was this older boy in the ninth grade and I was in the fifth grade, right? Much older, cute high school kid that paid attention to me. Right. And it was confusing, right? Because as kids, right, you do want that you do crave that kind of attention and approval from other people, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And so, you know, when I was processing that memory in my thirties, I actually said, and then I let him sexually assault me because I felt like that's what happened in my brain, my, my childlike brain. And my count, my therapist was like, wait a minute. Do you realize what you just said that you let him sexually assault you? Like, no, that, that wasn't a choice. You just, right. right? I, I was just feeling shame over. Maybe I wasn't screaming and stopping him. Um, but wow. that still meets the definition. Yeah. And, and I remember that part and how that happened to me as well. It's mm-hmm. like, for me, I was, I just wanted to be loved and I didn't want to say no because I thought if I said no that then I would be rejected and then they would talk about me so I just went along with it and I think that's what a lot of young girls stories are Mm -hmm. that we don't get the chance to say no right and and then later on you let's say did you graduate high school nope Okay, so what happened next? No, I um, started experimenting with drugs at about 15 just to be numb. Right. You know, I, I just didn't. I mean, you got trauma brain. You don't even know it. You're like exactly. in this funk of fog of like, where am I at? Yep. Yep. And then mixed with all the normal teenage hormones and right all the risky behaviors that even healthy right, teenagers that don't have trauma experience. And so you layer the trauma on top of it and... It, it made it even worse. So started experimenting with drugs, started cutting class a lot, and ultimately wound up dropping out of school in my, the beginning of my sophomore year. And through a series of events, wound up running away and starting to live on the streets because I didn't want anything to do with my family. And I thought I could make it on my own. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen? How did you live on the streets? I just started kind of bouncing and just couch surfing, basically. With some friends. Yep. Yeah, it started with friends. Like, honestly, I can't even tell you, you know, I, I remember where it be, I remember where I went first, but then from there, yeah. I kind of slowly made my way to bigger cities and just bounced around. Stealing I mean, how food does someone do that? Every day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, did, did you have to do anything to have a couch to lay on? Like, oh yeah. I mean, I, I was definitely being exploited for sure. At that point, I wasn't being trafficked yet, but I was definitely being sexually exploited and um, wound up living with some drug dealers because at that point, once I ran away, I really wanted to be numb. 
you know, and now I didn't have to hide the drug use from my family. So it got really bad. And I started using really hard drugs like cocaine and other things like that. Whoa. And it just got me in some really terrible places. <laughs> and then eventually what happened? How did you meet your boyfriend? Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. how old were you when that happened? I was 17. And I was already being sexually exploited <sighs> at the strip club. Wow. And so you started the, working at a strip club? Yep. Yep. The drug dealers, it wasn't long. The like, drug business got a little slow. And sure. one of the other girls talked me into going to the strip club. And I yeah, got you hired. probably saw all that money. Yeah, it seemed like okay, this is something we could do to pull our own weight for our family. And it's legal. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, those tips are it legal. At 17, it wasn't, but... <laughs> <laughs> you definitely had to have fake ID. No, I didn't. And oh, wow. They the club just let you in there? And they didn't put me on stage because they knew I was a minor. I'm sure they were trying to hide now, where that where was fact. this at? What state? It was in Dallas, Texas. Okay. Yeah. It was a club called Dreams that's not open anymore. <laughs> that is crazy. Dreams. Dreams of what? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you went in that club and you were... I mean, I just can't imagine because I remember watching the other girls make money and I was like, I want to do that. I want to get that money. Mm-hmm. Like, I couldn't believe that a man would pay to watch someone take their clothes off yeah, or to be dancing partially nude mm-hmm. or fully nude. It's like, are these people stupid? Like, honestly, did you think some of the men were stupid? Because that's <laughs> what I was thinking, like. These guys are idiots. Well, like, I think some of them are dumb and some of them are predators. Like, I yeah. remember sitting on, you know, here I should have been entering my sophomore year of high school and I was sitting on like a 50-year-old man's lap. Like, that's that's predatory behavior. Totally. You know I wasn't mature enough to be there. That's like sitting on grandpa's lap. Like, right. what am I doing here? Like, mm-hmm. and, and then, I mean, did any of the buyers, I want to call them buyers because mm-hmm. they're not clients to us. Mm-hmm or constituents or whatever we want to call them or clientele of the strip club. Did any of them assault you? Not at that strip club that I can remember. Um, I was, I was there. I only made it about a month or month and a half mm-hmm. until I was ready to run and, and try to find my next place to live. Cause I hated it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not uh, a glamorous, I mean, you know, honestly the fast money mm-hmm. for me personally was awesome, but it, no matter what, the first time I ever took my clothes off personally, mm-hmm. I had to drink a couple of shots of tequila. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't do it without you know, some courage. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I got to get some hard liquor behind this first strip tease I'm ever going to do. Uh, so then how did you meet the man that eventually got you into escorting mm-hmm. or the track what yeah. happened so he used to come into that same strip club and he would play pool in the back with his friends you know traffickers and pimps you know know exactly where to hang out to find vulnerable kids how much easier is it to take a girl that's already taken her clothes off for money and push her just a little bit further into prostitution and so much easier because her boundaries are already expanded right she, they're already vulnerable right versus some um, preacher's daughter right that's never had those experiences it would be a lot harder to victimize that person um so he yeah he would come into the club and play pool and i don't remember how many times I actually met him. I do remember asking him if he had drugs and he told me he did. And so I decided to run away from those drug dealers in the strip club and think, think that I was getting away oh, from everything. Yeah. And yeah. And he'd be my new boyfriend. And yeah. And he sounded like, a, a, was he nice to you? And yeah, 
I thought he was like, cute. He, you know, I mean, honestly, back then I'm very different. This 17 yeah. year old girl than the woman I am today. I like my, my life goals back then were to have a gold tooth right here with yeah. a diamond on it. So, <laughs> but you know, he was an aspiring musician and we, you know, wanted to get of a, a, a music video made and everything that he was putting down, I was picking up, you know, it yeah. sounded good to me. That was, that was the lifestyle that I thought I wanted at that time. Like I was attracted to really broken people because I felt yeah. really broken. And he probably had a story himself. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, a lot of people want to blame, and we don't want to say that traffickers are all innocent all the time, or mm -hmm. the uh, men that purchase and exploit women. But these traffickers that traffic women have, I mean, I know mine have stories, but mm -hmm. there's always some sort of pattern that yeah. of dysfunction sexually or physically or emotionally or mentally that's happened in their lives. Mm -hmm that they've tragically had to walk through. Yeah. And this is their, the streets accept us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Becca, they accept yeah. us. They, they love sure us do. the way we are. Yep. They don't expect anything from us. They don't make mm -hmm. us hit a standard or mm -hmm. tell you that you have to have a degree. Right. Or, you know, do this triple dance for me and do this or whatever. You, hey, you look cute the way you are. And no, mm -hmm. I'm saying this in the wrong way probably, but there's different things the streets expect from us. Right. Well, that's, it's that instant acceptance. Yes. But then, then that's what is it going to cost you? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. That grooming period is real. Yeah. It's raw and it's comforting. Mm -hmm. It feels like, like, did you feel home with him? Like, did you fall in love with him? Maybe not my first trafficker. I was only with him for a couple of months. I definitely thought maybe he could be this kind of romantic partner, right? This husband that I kind of had a dream of having, I think at 16, 17. Um, but my second trafficker, he, he knew exactly how to manipulate me. And I definitely fell in love with him, at least what I thought was love. You know, that's why I endured 10 years of abuse and exploitation and went to prison and wouldn't tell on him because Whoa. of those feelings, that genuine, those genuine attachment bonds that he started when I was 17 and he was 37 and I met him. Oh my gosh. So that's, he 20 years older than you. Yep. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So where did you meet him at the club or was this at a different it was location? A, a couple months later, it was at a strip club as well. So I, I love to tell people I met both my traffickers at yep. strip clubs. Like, like, I, like we already said, you know, they, there's a lot of vulnerable people inside there that they can exploit. So he was in the parking lot. And we pulled up to talk to him. He had a big Rottweiler dog. He was picking up what I didn't know, uh, the other woman that would become my wife-in-law. He was picking up uh, one of his other victims at the strip club. Okay, stop. Guess what? We hmm. need to tell people what a wife-in-law is. Okay. They might not understand what that <laughs> word means. Let's educate them. Yeah. Yeah, so another woman that's being trafficked by the same man could be called sister wife, wife-in-law, wifey, uh, folks, right? There's a lot of different... Uh, vernacular that's used mm -hmm. in the game but it family. is basically exactly somebody else that's in your your little small crime family you said crime family <laughs> it's basically the mafia yeah. it's the pimp mafia mm -hmm. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not making it light or funny no it's organized crime so I don't want anyone mm -hmm. to think that we're making fun of this because mm -hmm. this is serious talk right now 
I mean, especially now you're starting to see a lot of different networks with very, what I would call professional pimps that have built layers underneath them that the bottom girls that are just green, right? They're new recruits. They're just being turned out. They don't even ever actually meet the pimp. There's two layers of different women in between them. So there's some really sophisticated organized crime and your street level pimps too. Sure. Okay. Listen, Mm -hmm. I definitely want to hear what happened with you. And this man that you fell in love with, because mm-hmm. it sounds like to me, 10 years yeah. meant that you cared for him mm-hmm. and that you were down for him. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely have to do part two. Yeah. Are you down with that? Of course. Yeah. So let's do that. And let's have people know how to get a hold of you. Sure. Mm-hmm. So tell them how to reach you. Mm-hmm. They want you to teach them or speak or so into your organization, help you with what your mission is. Yeah, we'd love to find, um, yeah, people to help support. We just launched the Charleston Law Center in, um, in Nevada last year. So we provide pro bono legal services to survivors of sexual and domestic violence all across the state. Um, so people can find me at charlestonlawcenter.org or they can also find me at beccaspeaksout.com. Okay, perfect. Becca, thank you so much. I can't wait to do part two. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. And everyone, isn't it fascinating? If you look at Becca, she doesn't look anything like what she just described, what she's been through. Because guess what? That's the power of Jesus. So please, friends, you do not want to miss part two. We're going to do it. Stick with us. We'll see you next time on Annie's Pink Chair. Thanks for watching. Hi, my name is Anna Lobert, and right now we're standing at the Destiny House, and this is a place where ladies can come and heal from the ravages of sex trafficking and trauma, complex trauma that is very common with each survivor that gets out of trafficking. We just love this property because it's a place of peace. A lot of people say to me, Annie, you know, trafficking really doesn't affect me. I don't know why you're even doing this. Well, listen, it's in your own backyard. It's in Las Vegas, but it's also in Los Angeles. It's also in Dallas. It's also in Chicago. It's also in Minneapolis. It's also in New York. It's in Florida. It's in every state in our country. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a place where ladies can come and get the healing that they truly need. And we are survivor-led, and it's so important that you join us in this fight. This is something you can become a monthly partner with. We are survivor-led, and because of that, we don't have a lot of funds. We need your help. We need your partnership. People say, well, I want to be involved. I want to volunteer. I want to do this. I want to do that. Well, yes, we'd love for you to volunteer, but you know what we need more? We need partners like you to step up and stand with our ladies and say, I believe in your now. I believe in your healing and your future. And here's my $20 a month. Here's my $50 a month. Here's my $500 a month to go towards your healing, to go towards your trauma therapy, to go towards your cooking classes, to go towards your job readiness classes, to go towards your college. This is what I want to give as a gift to these wonderful human beings that are being restored from the horrible ravages of trafficking. I'm one of the ladies. I wish I had this program when I was getting out of trafficking. Unfortunately, I didn't. But we have it here at Destiny House and another house we have, Dream House. It's our house that the graduates go to when they get out of this property and they transition into their job, into their schooling, into getting their own car and their own place, independent living. We really need your support. We can use your support. Please join us in this fight. It doesn't take that much. You can give it for coffee for the day. You can give up that country ride you're gonna take with your friends or 
or that weekend vacation, give us a support because we are in need of monthly donors just like you. And by you giving a dollar or more or a thousand dollars from a dollar to 10,000, whatever that looks like, you are going to be changing someone's lives. And our lives that we work with are precious. Please join us today and go to pinkchair.org, click on donate, join us in the fight against sex trafficking. My friends, this is my book, Fallen Out of the Sex Industry and Into the Arms of the Savior. And this is the story of me being turned into a sex trafficking slave in Minneapolis, Hawaii, and Las Vegas, my final destination. This teaches you about trafficking and how it can happen in your own backyard. You think it can't happen to you? Think it can't happen to your girlfriend or your child, your granddaughter, your niece, even your nephew? It can, my friends. If you're interested in this, this is going to help you learn about this, but it's also going to give you a call to the charge. You can simply go to pinkchair.org, click on the book to purchase it. And you can help us help others get out of trafficking. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.